Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, our mission has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. A hallmark of the institution is the caliber of our fellowship. Our renowned scholars have both academic and practical experience. Their work is rigorous, independent, and grounded in history, data, and logic. The dissemination of our work has led to significant impacts on important public policy initiatives here and around the world. These briefings are just one of the ways we hope to inform the discussion on difficult challenges before us. Thank you for joining us today. As a reminder, we will be taking audience questions and I encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's discussion is with historian and best-selling author, Andrew Roberts, and is entitled Leadership in War. Andrew is the Roger and Martha Mertz Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He has written or edited 19 books, which have been translated into 23 languages. His most recent book is entitled Leadership in War, Lessons from Those Who Made History. His biography of Winston Churchill, entitled Churchill, Walking with Destiny, spent 10 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. He appears regularly on radio and television around the world, including when NBC commissioned him to commentate on the royal wedding of Prince William to Kate Middleton, following his well-received broadcast at previous royal weddings and funerals. Andrew, welcome and thanks for being here today. Thank you very much indeed, Tom. It's a delight to be here. Great. In your most recent book, Leadership in War, Essential Lessons for Those Who Made History, you compare nine leaders who led their nations through the greatest wars the world has seen and whose unique strengths and weaknesses shaped the course of human history. How did you choose those you decided to profile? Well, it was very much serendipity, uh, frankly. I, um, I chose the ones that I was interested in, that I knew about, that I thought I had something interesting and useful to say about. Um, so I didn't, not for a moment am I pretending that they are the nine most important war leaders. If they were, I would have included uh, George Washington and Franklin Roosevelt and uh, Abraham Lincoln, various other Americans. Um, but I didn't feel, because I was giving these as a series of lectures to the New, New York Historical Society, uh, that I could really lecture um, Americans on those Americans. And uh, I did include George Marshall and uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, because I'd written about them and, uh, and I felt that I, I knew enough about them. So it was very much a, 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 a choice. I put in Margaret Thatcher because um, I knew her, quite well and uh, very much admired her victory in the Falklands War, uh, which is the only one of the uh, wars that I actually lived through myself. Interesting. So let's go a little deeper on the nine leaders you did select. Starting with the 19th century, century you chose Napoleon Bonaparte and Horatio Nelson. Tell us a little bit about their leadership, the challenges they faced, and what made them distinctive as world military leaders. Well, Horatio Nelson was an uh, exemplar of the concept of attack. He was always ready uh, to attack. He believed in it. He believed that if he could place a British ship next to a Royal Naval vessel next to an equally sized French or Spanish vessel, then the, um, the discipline and the uh, training of the uh, British ship would ultimately win. Um, because they get more broadsides to the minute. 
and uh, and so that really is the uh, the essence to uh, to Admiral Nelson, as well of of course being a, a a great seaman and somebody who from the age of twelve mastered the art of uh, of sail. Hmm. Um, with Napoleon, he really was the exemplar of all of the great leadership uh, qualities. Um, hmm. That didn't stop him from losing, of course. Uh, he he lost the last battle and. Uh, and ended his life in exile on St. Helena. So um, I'm not for a moment saying that great leadership equals um, ultimate victory. Uh, but if I might, I'd like to just um, quote from one paragraph of my book on, um, uh, on war leadership about Napoleon, because it strikes me that the things that he had, the qualities that he had, um, were present in, um, in some or all of the other uh, leaders and that they are the qualities that one looks for in a great war leader. Napoleon's career demonstrated the importance of compartmentalization, meticulous planning, knowledge of terrain, superb timing, steady nerves, valuing the importance of discipline and training, understanding the psychology of the ordinary soldier to create esprit de corps, the issuing of inspirational speeches and proclamations, controlling the news, adapting the tactical ideas of others, asking pertinent questions of the right people, a deep learning and appreciation of history, a formidable memory, utter ruthlessness when necessary, the deployment of personal charisma, mm. immense calm under unimaginable pressure, especially in moments that look like defeat, an almost obsessive compulsive attention to detail, rigorous control of the emotions, and the ability to exploit a momentary numerical advantage at the decisive point on the battlefield, and not least, of course, good luck. And those are things that, um, that he had all of, and that m most of the rest of my uh, leaders had at least some of. Yeah. So Bonaparte had the full package, as it were. It seems to me both Napoleon and Nelson were particularly suited to the military circumstances in which they found themselves. How, how were they raised or trained or educated to be uh, as successful as they were in their military challenges? Well, um, Nelson started off at the age of 12, joining the Royal Navy um, in a ship commanded by his uncle, Captain Morris Suckling. And uh, he had the advantage um, although this might sound a bit strange, nonetheless, of actually losing two of the early um, involvements in the um, military engagements that he was involved in. And, uh, and he learned from this. It was extremely useful for him to, uh, uh, to, to learn from defeat. Actually, you see a lot of the nine people I write about um, do uh, learn from defeat. I'm sure we'll come on to that later on. But um, Napoleon was um, an aristocrat in the sense of, um, of Corsica in the 1760s. He was given extreme, because he was an aristocrat, he got free education. His father was broke, but nonetheless, um, aristocrats in, uh, in Bourbon, France at the time got free, extremely good education. So he went to uh, the best military schools, the best military academies later on. And uh, he was a highly intelligent uh, lad. And he was a huge reader, especially of history. So, in a sense, he had the trifecta of uh, things that make him, that make a, a a leader use their education properly. Mm -hmm. You had uh, in your book mentioned you, you mentioned a couple times uh, von Clausewitz 
uh, quotation on the relationship between politics and war. Uh, and I have an interesting question from Ehud uh, about uh, Napoleon. He says, notwithstanding his tactical abilities, is Napoleon's ultimate failure a failure of strategic understanding of European politics? And how essential is the knowledge of politics to being a, success, a successful military leader? It's absolutely essential. It's an extremely good question. Um, really, from Pericles onwards and earlier, um, the general has to be a politician of some kind. In fact, the, uh, the, the name Strategos, meaning general, also meant politician in ancient Greece. And you see this again and again. And even in uh, some of the people I write about, like uh, Dwight Eisenhower, they start as soldiers and then go on to being uh, politicians. We had uh, the Duke of Wellington, of course, who became prime minister um, after he won the Battle of Waterloo. So it is a very important thing to be able to do both. Um, I don't think it's fair to say that Napoleon lost because he was a bad politician, um, if that's what Meher was, uh, was trying to allude to. Right? He lost because he invaded uh, Russia, which, of course, he shouldn't have done. But nonetheless, one has to remember that when he did invade Russia in 1812, he had an army well over twice the size of the Russian army. He didn't um, expect to go all the way to Moscow. That wasn't part of his plan at all. He only wanted to fight 50 miles within the um, borders of Russia. Uh, he had an a, a enormous force. He just had no idea that a third of the central um, fighting force of his, uh, of his army was going to be destroyed by uh, typhoid um, within a matter of months. I see. Interesting. Definitely bad luck there. Uh, absolutely. And, and actually, and, and, and uh, more than that, in a sense, he did retreat in the wrong, um, in the wrong way. He, after the Battle of Maliaroslavitz on the 25th of October, 1812, he took the wrong route back, the one via uh, Borodino rather than a, a more southerly route. But again, this was bad intelligence in that uh, he hadn't, his, his cavalry weren't able to tell him where the Russians were. And in fact, they were nowhere near the road that he should have gone down. So there was tremendous, uh, when I mentioned at the end, luck being important, um, it, uh, it, it ran out for uh, Napoleon rather than his political sense. Yeah. You have two Americans on your list, George Marshall, uh, George Marshall and Dwight Eisenhower. Could you talk about them a bit and in particular, maybe contrast their leadership styles with the other uh, seven leaders in your book? Yes, yes. Well, they were both, um, they were both tremendously um, cerebral uh, figures. They were, they were much brighter. Certainly Ike was much brighter than he, uh, um, he sometimes put out about himself, in fact. He, he slightly underplayed uh, his intelligence, but uh, he would not have got to the top of the war planning department of the Pentagon uh, under Marshall unless he was a, a pretty uh, highly intelligent man. And of course, he had been, like Marshall, an instructor in, uh, in um, American war colleges, and that was tremendously useful for both of them. Neither of them actually uh, were uh, frontline soldiers at any stage. Um, it said that the first time that Eisenhower heard a shot in anger was when he shot a rat in his headquarters at Caserta in uh, Italy. And of course, General Marshall was a... Uh, was a um, staff officer during the First World War working under General Pershing. But um, this didn't hold them back in any way. They were both um, uh, tremendously talented men. And of course, actually, Eisenhower was one of Marshall's protégés. And Marshall was very good. This is one of the aspects of military leadership. 
successful military leadership, that he was very good at sacking people. He was also very good at, at bringing people on. In the Second World War, he uh, sacked some 60 generals. But he also brought up people like uh, Eisenhower, who he spotted were, um, were talented. And he himself uh, was only number 16 on the list of generals that, I, uh, that um, FDR could have appointed as US Army Chief of Staff on the 1st of September 1939. So he had already, um, Marshall had already benefited from the same attitude that you go for the best man rather than the uh, next person on the list down to seniority. I see. So meritocracy was a very big part of the way in which they managed their military challenges. A key aspect, key aspect, and it, it often is in American uh, politics because, uh, sorry, military uh, life and politics, because, uh, of course, you don't have a, a set aristocracy. Uh, you do have aristocrats. Uh, FDR clearly came from the aristocratic uh, background in, uh, in America, but um, you have nothing like the same kind of uh, hidebound class system that we had in Britain in the 19th century, where um, it was next to impossible for a, a non-gentleman to become an officer. Yeah, interesting. The question from Patrick, which again is about this political military leadership nexus. And the question is, after Eisenhower, has a distance between politics and military leadership become unbridgeable? unbridgeable? Gosh, that's another very good question. Um, I, uh, I hope not. Um, I think that there are plenty of, um, of tremendously impressive uh, American soldiers who I think would have been very good in military rank. You actually, funny enough, at Hoover have uh, both Jim Mattis and H.R. McMaster. Um, mm-hmm. Also of, uh, David Petraeus, you know, who I think uh, any one of those three men would uh, would be superb at uh, uh, to national command, um, political command, I mean. Um, mm-hmm. It's an awful lot more difficult, I think, uh, today. The um, the world of, uh, of Twitter and uh, social media and so on, I think might make it uh, more difficult for a cerebral general to, um, to be able to uh, appeal to a mass electorate in the way that Ike could, or of course, uh, Douglas MacArthur was planning to. Yeah, maybe political leadership with social media is more pugilistic these days than military leadership. <laughs> it's <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, you have uh, you have three national. Having said that, yeah. Having said that, that's a good line. It's a good line, Tom. But having said that, I, I do um, rather wish that uh, Winston Churchill had been around at the time of uh, Twitter, because yeah. some of his tweets, some of his best gags, would fit into 240 characters or fewer. There's a marvelous line in the uh, a debate in the House of Commons where a Labour MP shouted "rot" at him, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Churchill replied, I thank the Honourable Member for telling us what's in his mind. <laughs> <laughs> and that would, uh, that would easily fit into the 240 uh, characters. Perfect Twitter material. Uh, you have, you're speaking of Winston Churchill, you have three nationalists in your list, Winston Churchill, Charles de Gaulle, and Margaret Thatcher. Talk about them for a moment, please. Yes, well, of course, I use nationalist in the most positive uh, sense, the sense of uh, patriotic uh, nationalism with all three of them. Uh, Charles de Gaulle, uh, the creator of Gaullism, Margaret Thatcher, who in many ways was in the 1980s the British Gaullist, uh, and Winston Churchill, whose um, who's, uh, writings and his actions actually in a way define 
uh, what patriotism means to a lot of uh, British people even today. So, yes, they, uh, they, they each understood the concept of the nation. And, uh, of course, famously, Charles de Gaulle's opening line in his war memoirs, um, do, he actually starts with the words, I have a certain idea, I have always had a certain idea of France. Mm-hmm. And Churchill always had a certain idea of, um, of Britain, as did Margaret Thatcher. So, uh, yes, I think these are important aspects. And they, they never um, went into, tipped over into the um, foul ultra-nationalist um, kind of, uh, of nationalism of, uh, of Adolf Hitler or, or um, Joseph Stalin, which, of course, I also write about in this uh, book. Well, only ask that, I mean, those are interesting choices. Why did you choose to include Hitler and Stalin in this book? Because I wanted to underline the fact that, um, that leadership is an uh, amoral, not immoral. Um, it can be good, but it isn't connected to morality. You can have people who um, are good war leaders, which I'm not saying Adolf Hitler was, needless to say, um, who, um, uh, and, and their morals have got very little to do with it. Um, one of the examples I'd use is David Lloyd George, who was the man who won the British, um, uh, won the First World War as far as Britain uh, was concerned. And uh, he had a a very um, dubious moral character. Um, When he was asked at one point about the, uh, whether or not he was going to take, a journalist asked him whether or not he was going to take Mrs. Lloyd George to the Paris Peace Conference at Versailles. Uh, and he replied, would you take sandwiches to a banquet? Um, which is a completely uh, you know, uh, outrageous and unacceptable kind of joke to make uh, nowadays. And, um, and yet he was a, a great war leader. So, you know, these two uh, things, morality and, uh, and um, success at war leadership, don't seem to overlap. Got it. So your definition of leadership is, it boils down to just it's instrumentality, the ability to rally people to achieve a certain end. Whether the end is moral or immoral is totally detached from leadership capabilities. It's like um, nuclear fission. Uh, you can use it for, uh, for good as well as for ill. Exactly. Got it. If you're just joining us, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's Virtual Policy Briefing with Andrew Roberts. So we have these nine names on the table now, and we'll, we'll talk more about them, but let's, let's try to Gather, gather some lessons from the research, Andrew. What are the durable characteristics of great military leaders in your view? Well, resilience is one of them. Uh, the capacity to uh, get over setbacks and, uh, and in some way to, uh, to um, learn from them. To uh, learn from one's mistakes is essential. I think you see it again and again with these people. Each of them had serious setbacks. Over half of them went to jail. Uh, at one point in their careers. Obviously, in uh, de Gaulle and Churchill's case, it was a prisoner of war camp. But nonetheless, um, it's a setback for, uh, for anybody, and they didn't allow it to define them. They made sure that it was something that, uh, that just built their resilience. You also see in uh, Napoleon's phrase the capacity to electrify the soul, to, um, to tell people, tell the followers... Um, that they're not just fighting for themselves or their country or that particular um, uh, place or time. They're actually t- fighting for something bigger than that, something timeless, something more important, um, and thereby giving their lives an extra meaning. Mm-hmm. And that is something 
that you also see successfully in uh, in um, all nine of these people. How about charisma? Not so important. Not as important as you'd expect. Um, actually, uh, it's a it's a pretty artificial construct. Charisma. This was something that came through loud and clear the more I uh, looked into it. Uh, one automatically assumes that um, if somebody's charismatic, that's therefore a, a positive feature or something that's sort of almost God-given. Well, it wasn't, especially in, of course, Hitler's case. If you have Lenny Riefenstahl doing your movies and propaganda films and you have um, Joseph Goebbels in charge of your, uh, your propaganda and you have Albert Speer organising these rallies with 100,000 people at them, you can seem charismatic. Uh, Hitler had a series of tricks that made him seem charismatic, um, and uh, which I go into in my uh, uh, leadership in war book. And what you find again and again is, in fact, people who don't bother about um, trying to create a, an artificial charisma, like Winston Churchill, who wrote his own speeches and and uh, had no um, tricks of the trade of that kind. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, there's something beyond charisma that is uh, just as impressive and, and just as inspiring. Yeah. What about the capacity for oration? For what, sorry? What about the capacity for oration? Just a great public... Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Public speaking is... Um, is uh, important, but not as important as you'd imagine. Um, I, I was expecting it to be a key uh, feature, but actually neither Napoleon nor Stalin were very good at uh, public speaking, actually, and yet, uh, and yet they both very much uh, um, made it into this book as, as war leaders. So, uh, so that too. I mean, of course, if you are a, an absolutely um, brilliant public speaker, Churchill had to put an awful lot of of time and effort and, and thought and into his public speaking. He, didn't, he wasn't a natural. Um, Hitler would practice again and again um, as well. And, uh, and he used to go to a famous German comedian called First Weidel, who he would, um, he would listen to and, and work out timing um, from. Uh, it must be very off-putting for Mr. Vidal to have Adolf Hitler sitting in the front row, you know, taking notes when you're trying to uh, to amuse an audience. But nonetheless, you know, these these are people who did uh, put effort into um, into their public speaking abilities. Yeah, is a sense of humor necessary for a great leader? No, no. I, again, I was rather hoping it would be. Um, <laughs> he touched her uh, very well, and uh, she. Uh, um, appointed me to take her place on the uh, Margaret Thatcher Archive Trust. And uh, when we had meetings, she would, um, it, it was very clear that the one thing you shouldn't bother to do was to tell a joke or <laughs> attempt to be witty or funny because it just simply passed her by entirely. Um, that she, uh, the way she would start a, um, a drinks party conversation would be, so Andrew, what do you think of NATO? <laughs> It would be a bit off-putting, but nonetheless, that was her small talk, <laughs> which would be a bit off-putting, but, uh, but once you got used to it, uh, you were ready. <laughs> yeah. I've got a question from John that, that wants us to revisit the, the necessity of morality for leadership. He asks, if you're not a moral person, how could you inspire and lead? Well, because um, during wartime, people are more interested in victory, really, than in, um, in whether you're faithful to your wife. And so um, when David Lloyd George was spectacularly unfaithful to his wife, 
um, and indeed installed his mistress at number 10 Downing Street and the whole of, of um, uh, political London knew about this. Still, ultimately, what the people really wanted was for him to win the war. And you see this again. And so, um, although it would, be, it would be nice if, um, if moral people um, won and immoral people lost, actually you don't see that in the, uh, one of the great victors of the Second World War, the person who was able to grab half of Eastern Europe um, after the Second World War was Joseph Stalin, who was, of course, uh, one of the most uh, paranoid, sinister and evil men in all history. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you something about um, the psychology of these nine people. Did, when did they recognize or realize that they were destined to be great leaders? Is this something that they internalized or felt entitled to do or felt a destiny to do in their lives? Actually, it's very interesting. It happens in the mid, in all of these nine cases, but also actually I've noticed in lots of other leaders. Um, uh, it happens in your um, early to mid-twenties, um, sometimes a little bit later. One thinks again and again of, um, of how often in that period of people's lives they recognised um, the capacity that they had for great leaders, something they'd done, something they'd, uh, that, that had happened to them. Um, Stalin was uh, 25 when he... When he um, robbed the bank at Tiflis, the state bank, uh, and stole $40 million in modern-day money, killed eight people and got a great deal of respect from the Bolsheviks uh, as a result of that. Um, Winston Churchill was 25 when he escaped from his prisoner of war camp. Um, Margaret Thatcher was 25 when she did so much better in her first general election than anybody else thought she was going to uh, Hitler was a little older. He was 29 when he won the Iron Cross uh, first class on the Western Front. Um, both Eisenhower and Marshall were in their 20s when they did extremely well in their, um, in their war academies. So you see this uh, again and again um, with, uh, with these leaders. It's, uh, it's something that comes out of Napoleon, a classic example, was 26 when he captured the bridge at Lodi in the great uh, battle there in May 1796. And, uh, and, he, and he said of himself at that time, um, or of that time later, he, he looked back over his life and he said, that was the moment that I realized that I was capable of leading men. Hmm. Amazing. You're listening to Hoover Visiting Fellow Andrew Roberts. You can find more research by Hoover Fellows at hoover.org. Uh, Andrew, I want to... Uh, the interesting, an interesting common feature of all of these leaders, and I think all leaders that one can think of, is that you have a long career that's punctuated by many, many setbacks and failures. Do you think setbacks and failures are necessary to bring out or develop great leadership? So long as the leaders learn from them, uh, yes. Uh, and, and you're right. In each of the, these cases, there is something that... Uh, that was a, a, a sort of punch on the nose for them. And uh, in some cases, it's, it's going to prison, uh, like, uh, like Hitler did after the um, uh, Munich Putsch. For some time, another classic example, of course, would be Winston Churchill, who uh, the Dardanelles catastrophe that he was um, in great deal uh, responsible for, it was his, his idea, the uh, Gallipoli expedition, um, 
and that set him back, but not even throughout the rest of the First World War. He was back in the cabinet um, mm. because the government didn't want to have him outside the tent. They, they, they feared his oratory and feared his mm-hmm. forensic skills in debate. Um, you, see it, uh, you see it again and again, people who have um, uh, things happen to them in their, in their lives that um, uh, with, with Stalin, again, it was being sent to Siberia, um, mm. where he had spent four years that um, were things that um, would really, frankly, knocked out many other people and, and uh, would, have, uh, would have been uh, terrible, uh, incredibly painful, emotionally, psychologically scarring moments. Um, but uh, with these people, they tended to, um, I mean, and, and physically scarring in Nelson's case, of course, he lost an eye and an arm. Yeah. Um, but uh, but he but he he brushed himself down and and got up and started again. Yeah. How do how do uh, leaders with that much failure in their past stay eligible for new leadership positions? How did Churchill remain so important uh, to British politics even with that checkered military management history early in his career? Well, I suspect that people were a bit more forgiving. Um, in those days than they are today, and um, that um, uh, that might explain part of it. You know, we mentioned um, we mentioned about Twitter. I'm not sure in the uh, in the present day political environment you could launch a campaign that led to the uh, killing or wounding of 147,000 people like the Dardanelles campaign did, and then get back into the government only a few months later uh, in the modern day. I think that would be uh, probably next to impossible. But, um, but in earlier periods, if people spotted that there was a, a promising uh, leader, they would, um, they would back him. And who even in Nelson's case, you know, he, he actually overtly broke orders, uh, ignored orders during a battle um, in uh, the Battle of Copenhagen. Uh, but his hunch was proved correct and, uh, and uh, they won the battle. So, you know, risk-taking is part of this, of course it is. Nonetheless, um, I think it might be more difficult to get away with that kind of thing today. Interesting. Um, Andrew, I have a couple questions that are trying to relate war leadership to commercial leadership, and I'll, I'll read Benjamin's question and see if you have a reaction to it. Benjamin asks, people often use war as an analogy for modern business. Does this hold up? If so, what can a founder of a tech startup in Palo Alto in 2020, learn from leaders you have profiled. Well, I'm very, um, I'm very doubtful about this. Uh, I, uh, I, I don't mind um, uh, saying that there is a huge difference, and that of and one of the differences, apart from the obvious ones about people not being blown up and and uh, and not uh, dying in their thousands in uh, um, in startups in Palo Alto. Um, is that you can't control the media um, in, in real life, in business life, whereas you um, most certainly can, even in democracies, in wartime. And uh, there's a great story when, uh, a true story of when Churchill was in the Kremlin and, uh, and discussing in, uh, in August 1942 with Stalin about, uh, about all this. And he said that... The, in wartime, truth uh, is so valuable that it needs to be protected by a bodyguard of lies. 
And you can do that and get away with it in wartime in a way that, uh, of course, business um, people tend not to be able to do in, uh, in peacetime, or shouldn't be able to anyhow. Interesting, interesting. So you're, you're skeptical of, of drawing lessons from military leadership to commercial leadership? There are some. There are some. I mean, we've already mentioned how you shouldn't take uh, setbacks as defining you. Uh, and that that's clearly does have um, uh, use in the modern commercial world. Um, in fact, in America, where an, an early bankruptcy in your career is not a career-defining moment at all, it's almost uh, you know, going through Chapter 11 is, is something that um, an uh, entrepreneurial person might well have to do. Right. and is not personally against them. Um, whereas, uh, so, so in that sense, resilience and, uh, and the capacity for, um, for overcoming setbacks is something that um, war leaders have to have and business leaders have to have. But um, I'm wary about the differences, of course, as well. Here, here's a question from Sergio. I'm going to ask it to you. and uh, I'll just read the question. I'll put some context on it. I'll be waiting on your new book on Margaret Thatcher. I didn't know you were going to write one, but I'll, I'll be waiting on that too, Andrew. <laughs> in the meantime, could you inform how important was Chilean help for winning the Falklands War? And would you maybe just address more generally the capacity of these leaders to forge strategic alliances and how important that was to their success? Um, firstly, thank you, Sergio, but you're going to have to wait a long time owing to the fact that my friend Charles Moore has just brought out the last of uh, the three volumes of the biography that he's been writing over the last 20 years of Margaret Thatcher. And it is, um, irritatingly, an extremely good book, a brilliant <laughs> book. And so uh, there's absolutely no space for another Margaret Thatcher biography, uh, probably for the next 20 years. Um, so don't hold your breath, uh, Sergio. With regard to um, uh, the importance of alliances, there was another marvellous line of Winston Churchill's, so, uh, talking about the Americans indeed, saying that the only thing worse than fighting a war with allies is fighting a war without them. Yeah. And um, of course, uh, in that almost Wildean clip, uh, he really does um, get it right, because the coalition wars, the ones that um, have been successful, the ones against Napoleon and uh, against the Kaiser and against Hitler, um, really have been so much more successful than the ones where um, nations go it alone. So, so yes, there is uh, something very much to be, to be learned from history about, uh, about coalition. Yeah. What, just in summing it all up, what are the lessons from your book for future military leaders? What, what would you emphasize to someone who wants to be a military leader in terms of how they best prepare themselves? Well, um, following on from that, um, from that last uh, question, actually, of uh, Sergio's, um, learn history. Winston Churchill was walking across uh, Westminster Abbey um, to go to a luncheon for the coronation in June 1953. And a young American, young teenage American boy uh, came up to him and said, can you, um, uh, can you give me a, a piece of advice that I can take through life. And uh, Churchill said, study history, study history, for therein lies all the secrets of statecraft. And actually not just statecraft, but, uh, but military history too. You see in the great American war colleges um, of Army, Navy and Air Force, um, always have departments that study history. 
And um, quite right too, because each of these leaders, all of them, including I'm afraid Adolf Hitler, were fascinated by history. And, um, and they learned from each other. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher learned from Napoleon, uh, sorry, learned from Winston Churchill. She is a young girl, a 14 year old girl, would sit around in 1940, sit around the radio listening to Churchill over the radio. And you can tell some cadences of her Falkland speeches are Churchillian in that regard. Churchill himself learned from Napoleon, his hero. He had a bust of Napoleon on his desk all the time. Quote Napoleon endlessly. He had a library of Napoleon books that he had specially bound. Um, and, uh, and Napoleon himself learned from Alexander the Great and, uh, and Julius Caesar. So there's a sort of apostolic succession, as it were, of uh, leaders, all of them all of them learning from history. So that would be my, uh, my response to that question. Interesting. Uh, Mo asked the following question. Can you tell if any of these war leaders in your book were influenced by the art of war? I think this is Sun Tzu's book. And if yes, to what extent? Yes. Um, yes, some of them were. Napoleon certainly was. He had a copy uh, in his library. Um, both Marshall and Eisenhower uh, had to study Sun Tzu at um, their military academies. Um, yes, he's a, he's a, a key, fag- uh, um, key uh, factor in so many of these people. De Gaulle also um, read Sun Tzu and writes about it in his autobiography. So, um, yes, it's a, uh, and of course, it's not just a military book, um, The Art of War. It has uh, very strong uh, political overtones as well, and, uh, and lots of messages for modern day politics as well. So, I think it's an extremely good um, thing to, uh, for people to read. And I believe it is still on the uh, curricula of, um, of many of the um, war colleges, including Shrivenham here in, uh, in London, in, in Britain, and uh, Sandhurst. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Christian asks the following question. Did the spiritual faith of some of these leaders contribute to their overall military effectiveness and decision-making? Gosh, that is a good question. Um, I, you, you do see some um, people who are, are strong Christians. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, in particular, of course, is, um, is somebody who, uh, uh, who was a, a, a Christian believer. Um, overall, though, I, um, I, and, and so, were, so was uh, George Marshall. He, he was uh, a, a um, Christian. Um, Unfortunately, there are too many who simply were not. Um, Napoleon didn't really uh, believe in anything terribly much beyond Napoleon. Um, Winston Churchill, similarly, uh, was not a Christian. Um, he, he admired the Sermon on the Mount and thought it was the last word in ethics. Um, but uh, he didn't uh, personally believe that uh, Jesus was the saviour. Um, and, uh, of course, um, both... Um, Hitler and Stalin were anti-Christian. So there is a, uh, there's a, there's, there's, I'm afraid, so much um, uh, on both sides that I haven't been able to see a, uh, a strong spiritual or religious core uh, that is necessary to great war leadership, I'm afraid. Yeah, we talked about this earlier, though. Several of those leaders had eccentric beliefs around, about the origins of man and uh, the, the epistemology of the world. I mean, Churchill being one of them, right, and Hitler being another one. Yes, he was a he, the, Churchill was immensely eccentric, but but he wasn't uh, in any sense um, sort of sociopathic. 
Um, and uh, uh, he was a sort of English, um, a highly eccentric Regency aristocrat, frankly, and that was um, that was it. Um, I'm afraid with uh, with Hitler, and I and I do go into this in in some detail in uh, in this uh, essay on Hitler in my leadership in war book. Um, his views are so, and this is quite quite beyond his obviously repulsive racial and uh, and political views. His actual views about so many other things are so profoundly mad that it is incredible that uh, he ever managed to get to the top of um, of uh, a modern industrial country like uh, like Germany. He believed that um, you could cure beriberi by eating potatoes. Uh, he believed that there was a previous ancient civilization that um, deliberately left Stone Age axes in the ground to con us into thinking that they hadn't existed. Uh, he believed that you could tell Czechs, uh, Czechoslovakian people, from the shape of their moustaches, which came from Mongolia. Um, any number of, he believed that he knew what dogs were thinking uh, by looking at them. Um, it was quite simply a series of beliefs. I've got them all, as I say, in this, uh, in this book, or at least not all of them, just the nuttiest ones. Um, and, and you think, why? If you, Tom, started to come up with any of those things, I don't think, uh, you know, saying these kind of things in public, which, which Hitler did, I don't think you'd last terribly long <laughs> as director of the Hoover Institution, frankly, and, uh, and rightly so. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. Well, last question, Andrew. If you could add one more chapter to the book, who would it be on? Oh, golly, um, what a good, uh, what a very good question. Uh, you know, I think I probably uh, would go back into the ancient world. I would, um, I'd read the translations of ancient Greece and do Pericles or uh, Thucydides or um, maybe Themistocles, one of the one of the great. Uh, um, Thucydides, more of a writer, of course, nonetheless, but he was a general. Um, one of the uh, one of the war leaders from the ancient world. I think that would be something uh, I'd like to know more about Hannibal. It would be great fun to uh, to walk in the um, in the footsteps of uh, Hannibal, even though it might involve crossing the Alps. I try and do it in summer. Um, yeah. The uh, whole I, I I believe in going to uh, battlefields. I visited uh, 54 now of Napoleon's 60 battlefields for a mm. book that I wrote about Napoleon a few years ago. I don't think that you should go, you should write about uh, soldiers unless you go to battlefields. It's a bit like a detective not bothering to visit the scene of the crime. Yeah, interesting. Wow. Well, what a fantastic book, Andrew, and what a great discussion. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm a huge admirer of, uh, of the Hoover Institution, as you know. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Have a nice day. Hoover's virtual policy briefing will be on summer hiatus until September, and you can go to hoover.org to find more information on the fall schedule as soon as it's available. I've so enjoyed hosting these policy briefings throughout the past few months. It started out as a way to open the dialogue and enable a meaningful exchange of policy ideas as our nation began to confront the COVID-19 pandemic, ended up being a widely sought after briefing, both inside and outside of the Beltway on a wide array of important issues. Thank you for tuning in and being a part of so many important discussions. 
On another note, please join the Hoover Institution for our next episode of Capital Conversations tomorrow, Wednesday, August 5th at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time with Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee and Distinguished Research Fellow Michael Oslin. They will be discussing how the U.S. and China are clashing around the world. Also in the lineup for this week, I'll be hosting the next installment of Hoover's Human Prosperity Project Speaker Series, which will take place this Thursday, August 6th at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time, featuring Michael McConnell and John Yu, who will discuss the impact of liberty and federalism on socialism and free market capitalism. I hope you'll be able to join us for one or both of these briefings. Until next time, please be well. Thank you. <laughs>